Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Jonathan Fuqua. Did I say your name right? Uh, close. It's Fuquay. 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 Okay. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Jonathan. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. I love your background, and um, it's that old school vibe I'm getting. Like, uh, that that's... You know, I don't know. It fits my philosophical views and theological <laughs> yeah. views well, old school. Nothing wrong with that. Sturdy. That's right. You know, last stands the test of time. Well, Jonathan, uh, gosh, there's so many things that I would love to talk with you about. Um, but I thought we would talk about common sense epistemology. And um, I... I think you're a great guy to take us through what that is uh and everybody listening if you think that common sense epistemology sounds pretty cool as far as the common sense part you are in for a treat if you don't know what epistemology is what would you say epistemology is jonathan was we have a real life epistemologist sitting here yeah epistemology is the study of knowledge and similar states like justified belief and rational belief. In a nutshell, that's what it is. It comes from two Greek words, episteme and logos, the study of knowledge or understanding. So it's it's interesting because people go to university all the time to pursue knowledge. It might be knowledge in the scientific field like biology or it might be knowledge in mathematics or it might be more, something more practical like accounting or nursing. And they often don't pause to ask themselves a question of what knowledge is. Right. How do we get knowledge? What's the difference between a justified uh, belief and an unjustified belief? And why does knowledge matter? People seem to assume answers to those questions without ever really thinking about them in any kind of detailed way. And so epistemology is the attempt to think about those things in a detailed way. As, as, as Chesterton once yeah. said, something like to paraphrase uh, Chesterton roughly, uh, uh, Philosophy is simply thought that has been thought out. You're going to be influenced by thoughts, by ideas, one way or the other. Oh, yeah. And so if you don't do philosophy, you'll be influenced by ideas that have never been thought out. Yeah. And so if you want to be influenced by ideas that have been thought out, you've got to do philosophy. And that holds true with epistemology. When, you, when people make claims that uh, we can't know that God exists or we can't know that Jesus rose from the dead or we can't know that certain moral claims are, are um, correct or incorrect, they're making assumptions about knowledge uh usually without ever pausing to think very carefully about what knowledge is and what it's what what's required for it so yeah. epistemology is the attempt to slow down and think carefully about those sorts of questions that's wonderful um and if you're <clears throat> for those who want kind of like tell me where this is going uh for philosophy you know what i i think I think I can accommodate that at least for this episode uh, to some extent. And I, I what I'm going to do, guys, is I'm going to pull up Jonathan, one of Jonathan's papers, just so you can get a flavor for this guy. And I'm going to just scroll down to the conclusion. I'm going to scroll down to the last sentence. And you have to understand, this is an academic paper. It's very academic-y. But just so you can see the where the rubber hits the road, what we're actually talking about. 
like the kind of crazy stuff that you'll learn in college and what Jonathan, where he's taking a stand. Uh, so here I'm going to share your metaethical Morianism and uh, evolutionary debunking conclusion, Jonathan, just so you know where I'm going on this. Yes. And I'm going to scroll down. If you didn't understand that title, don't worry. Can you see this, Jonathan? Yes. Okay, cool. So I'm already in the bibliography. Hold on. Let me go back up here. Uh, now I'm in the footnotes. So those of you who don't know, they're not watching on YouTube. Just listen carefully. Okay. Here's the conclusion to the paper. <laughs> if this particular view holds up, it turns out your belief, the one, you know, the one that the, the view that Jonathan's defending, if it holds up, it turns out your belief that raping children for fun is wrong. I should have warned you maybe that it was going to be bracing the kind that, that that's what we're talking about. Okay. We're talking about your belief that raping children for fun is wrong is just as rationally secure at least in the face of philosophical arguments to the contrary, as your belief that you have hands is secure. So that's the last sentence in this academic paper, high-level philosophy, professional philosophy. And I mean, I, I showed my wife this, <laughs> some of this stuff, and I said, see if you can make heads or tails of this paragraph right here. She's looking at it. She was like, you know, she was like, S, you know, whenever S knows that P, S knows P rather than some other contrast position, Q, this opens the possibility that S knows P rather than Q. But, not, you know, she's like, I'm starting to, my eyes are starting to glaze over a little bit. And I was like, all right, well, that's all right. You just need to plug through it a little bit. But this is one of the papers we're going to be talking about uh, that Jonathan wrote, Metaethical Morianism and Evolutionary Debunking. Um, Jonathan, where did this thing get published? Proceedings of the American Catholic Philosophical Association. So you're saying that the Catholics are concerned that we know common sense morality, like yes. rape is wrong? <laughs> That's right. In fact, I would say the whole Christian tradition presupposes that everyone possesses basic moral knowledge. Because the idea of, of, of sin presupposes the idea of, uh, of an objective moral law that you transgressed. And to acknowledge your need for a savior, you have to first acknowledge that you're a sinner. But you can't know that you're a sinner unless you recognize the reality of an objective moral law that you transgressed. And so I would say uh, something like this position that um, moral knowledge is accessible uh, and basic uh, to, the human, to the human person, at least to any cognitively mature properly functioning human person and and that 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 knowledge is um is more rationally secure than any skeptical arguments to the contrary i would say that that is part and parcel of the, the christian view of morality that sounds very familiar yeah yeah <laughs> L let me show you what's holding up my uh microphone stand here you got america's rifle okay that's not what i was going to show you <laughs> it's oh yeah it's it's wayne you see it? yeah 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 wayne grudem systematic theology it's like it's just like the nearest big book i had so but i yeah. thought it was kind of funny that um but uh 
so that that when you bring when you bring religion into the picture, you can see not only um, what you mentioned, Luke, that, you know, everyday moral knowledge is at stake in yeah. these high level academic debates, but also faith itself is, is seemingly seemingly on the line here as well, because the, the Christian message, even the message of Judaism or Islam or any any religion that teaches that you need to repent of, of your moral wrongdoing in order to be right with the creator. That that religion is not going to make any sense in a world where people don't believe in objective morality. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense to me. What's what as I was going through your stuff here that we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about three of his articles, like at least three, I think. Um, probably that'll be enough for today, but um I just it just hit me how crazy college is. Like I remember thinking in the nineties, I heard stories, you know, about kind of stuff you get taught in college. And I remember thinking, this just sounds crazy. It, it, it sounds crazy that some, some kid that was raised in a good home walks onto the university of Colorado at Boulder or whatever, whatever school it is. And sometimes they're Christian schools. Sometimes they're like these mainline Christian schools that have drifted and they come out believing that there is no such thing as objective morality. There's no truth in morality, which entails the position that you, you're not really rationally secure in believing that bracing thing you just said, take like the most ex, uh, extreme, horrible thing. And then you can't know that that's wrong. That that just right. follows. And right. and that's happening on a massive scale right all throughout the country and in in the western world in Oxford, Cambridge, right. Um Australia. Even, even, the, uh, even this kind of uh, ugly example of raping children for fun is surprisingly strikingly relevant. Oh my gosh. You have an attempt to normalize Australia. That is so. I didn't even make the connection that for for the main the big film that just came out because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. And uh, you know, people on the on the far progressive uh, left are trying to say that you know, pedophilia should be that term should be replaced with minor persons. That's a that's a new sexual orientation, and there's not anything necessarily immoral about. Yeah, and we did not plan this. This connection right here, we did not plan this at no, all. Like I, no. it, we were just now realizing, oh my gosh! I mean, how long ago did you write this paper? Well, that that that's that's another funny aspect of this is that when I when I wrote this paper, well, this paper was published in 2018. I wrote it okay. uh, before that. Um, I, I picked. <laughs> you I picked didn't write example. it after it was published. <laughs> I, I picked it this example because it's something that I, I figured would be uncontroversial. And, and five or six years ago, when I was working on this stuff, it was uncontroversial. But but now I think people would be somewhat, uh, at least some people, again, on the sort of the far progressive left, yeah. would be a little bit uncomfortable with this idea. They Certainly, they'd be uncomfortable with the idea that sex with children is necessarily wrong. They would probably, some of them are wanting to say now that... Um, uh, you know, that doesn't really count as rape because there are minor attracted people. And after all, children can give their consent. I mean, if a minor can give consent to uh, hormone therapy in order to change their 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 from being a boy to a girl, or if they can consent to, as it's so-called bottom surgery or a double mastectomy, if a 13-year-old can consent to that, 
why can't a 13 year old consent to sex with an adult? That, so there's, there's a, there's a deep connection here between transgenderism. I, I never thought about that. Con- I never yeah, thought but, about that connection before. That's yeah. so creepy. And so it's amazing how much the culture has shifted just in the last five years to where now all of a sudden this is an example that some people would be uncomfortable with. Uh, and, and some of my other work on this topic, Luke, I use a different example that I don't I, I think is still uncontroversial. And that's that the idea that recreational genocide is wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is an example I picked up from another philosopher who works in this area. Area is an Eastern Orthodox Christian, Terence Cunio, really excellent philosopher. I heard him. I heard him give that example in a talk he gave, and I I, I think most people would still agree that recreational genocide is is wrong. <laughs> yeah. And when we say we agree with it, what we mean is that it's true that it's wrong. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. You you, when I now I'm going to go back to that conclusion really quick. Because there was another thing that maybe people didn't see, and then we can get into GE more and like briefly who he is. Uh, the the issue of having hands, <laughs> and it's yeah. like it's so fat. I mean, what in the world's going on with that? Like having hands. Yeah. So this uh, this example uh, comes from a famous. Uh, Proof for the existence of an, of an external world. This is one of the questions that arises out of. Um, well, maybe we should back up just a, just a bit. There, there's a okay. lot of worries about skepticism that come from modern philosophy, uh, beginning beginning we, we could say roughly with Descartes. Uh, and, and, uh, in the aftermath of Descartes uh, and and other early modern philosophers like um, Hume and Locke and Kant and others, Leibniz, Barclay, and so forth, there are a lot of worries about whether we can really know that there's such a thing as an external world. And and the thought is that until we can sort of prove or demonstrate or secure in some kind of philosophically respectable way the reliability of our basic faculties, we really can't do anything else. So metaphysics, uh, um, natural theology, uh, theology proper, revealed theology. This all takes we get, takes a backseat to epistemology, and and um, we we kind of have a, 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 a in the in the classical tradition, metaphysics was prior to, considered prior to epistemology, had kind of priority over epistemology, and then in the modern period, the yeah, that order is flipped. Epistemology mm-hmm. becomes sort of prior uh, to metaphysics. Not not because people are just cu- simply curious about the way the human cognition works. That had always been a part of classical philosophy, but because they're specifically worried about skepticism. And mm-hmm. so fast forward to the uh, 20th century, there's a very famous British philosopher, G.E. Moore, George Edward Moore, a uh, very prominent and influential philosopher to this day who uh, says, well, you want proof that there's an external world. In fact, he's got an essay called Proof of an External World. He um and if I have, if I really do have hands, then there's an external world. That was sort of the basic idea. And and more challenged skeptics and, and critics to point out, well, what's wrong with the argument? I mean, the conclusion follows from the premises. The premises seem true. It seems like I'm justified in believing these premises. And so 
the conclusion is, itself is not one of the premises. So there's no circular reasoning. And so this seems like a Sometimes, are you, are you there, Luke? Just had to check on my, uh, my internet. <laughs> it's oh, okay. It's fine. We, we got, we dropped off there. So we have it. Okay. So should I continue? Yeah, go ahead and continue. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, uh, and so, so uh, I think we lost you right. As you were saying what GE Moore was saying about um, ha having hands. Yeah. He was saying that, um, you can sort of give a perfectly respectable proof of the external world just by pointing out that you have hands and that if you have hands, there's an external world. Yeah. Now, <laughs> can I, can I ask, uh, what is the X, what's an external world? What's external about it? Yeah. It's, it's the world outside of your mind. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And gotcha. It's one of the, the big skeptical worries about, um, in modern philosophy is can we really know that there's a world outside of our mind? It, it could be, for example, that all the things we think exist outside of our minds, like our hands or other people or trees and dogs, maybe, yeah. maybe these are just, uh, hallucinations, or maybe we're dreaming, or maybe we've been tricked by an evil demon, or maybe we're in the matrix or something right. like that. Okay. And the more, more says, no, we can, we can, we can know that there's an external world. Um, in fact, we can give it, we can give a respectable proof. I have hands. If I have hands, there's an external world. So there's an external world. And, and so um, there's a lot of debate about how to interpret what Moore was up to when he gave that uh, famous proof. Uh, what was he being serious? What, what did he have his tongue in his cheek or what was he, uh, what was he doing? Uh, I, I think that the, um, for listeners who are interested in this, the, in my opinion, the best um, take on what Moore was up to um, is is explained in a really good paper by um, the Georgetown philosopher, John Greco, in a paper called How to Read More, R-E-I-D, More, where he interprets uh, more as, as really following Thomas Reed uh, on these matters. And, and uh, Greco's point is that um, what Moore was trying to say is that, is like something that what was, uh, he's trying to say what Reed said in part, which is that you shouldn't try to prove philosophically that you know things that you don't know by means of philosophical proofs, but rather that you know by, by in, in some other way. And how do we know there's an extra world? Not by philosophical proofs, but by perception. And so that was really um, that was really Moore's point in in, uh, in giving that proof. But this kind of this kind of common sensist line uh, in response to the skeptic goes under the banner of Moreanism or common sensism or sometimes readingism. And so. And in in that language of Morianism and Morian facts and Morian truths, Morian propositions, I'm sort of following the, the contemporary literature in the way that I put that. But it's really just a common sense response to the radical skeptic. So there's um, a tradition in philosophy. Uh, sometimes it's a way introduction of philosophy is taught, I think, where you, you introduce a skeptical scenario and then. Uh, come on, kids, see if you can get out of this, you know, and then then um, sometimes what what's done is uh, you look at the philosophical tradition and you see if there's any resources for getting out of it. I, I've always been a little bit puzzled about uh, approaching philosophy that way. I, I mean, I'm not nitpicking or anything. I think it's it's fine. I mean, it can it can be beneficial, I think. But but one of the things I've always been bothered by is uh, just making sense of 
why there'd be a bunch of people in a classroom pretending like this is a problem when obviously you got to the classroom okay and and you're pretending that you hear the uh or maybe you're not pretending you actually hear the professor and you believe the professor exists and the professor's right over there and i'm i'm writing on a on a a desk i mean it can it can feel a little bit weird like yeah you're uh (laughs) You, you, there's something wrong with you for noticing all this common sense stuff mm-hmm. and uh and all these you're surrounded by all these crazy leftists and they're pretending like because <laughs> i mean in my tradition like when i went to church we never pretended that we were trapped inside of our own minds or anything like that and so it seems it's a little bit bracing but do you teach right. philosophy that way or do you think there's no, benefit? I don't <laughs> a couple of thoughts on that, on that way of teaching. I mean, for one thing, I, I do think there, there's a way to approach skeptical arguments um, such that you're not worried about losing your ordinary knowledge, but you're trying to learn from the skeptics argument, positive truths about knowledge. So, okay. So the, the thing that's interesting about skepticism is that the premises of a skeptical argument are typically plausible but they have a radically implausible conclusion. Yes. Kind of puzzle there. And yes. so you could say, well, okay, I, I know the skeptic is wrong because I, I know that I have hands. I know that I exist. I know that recreational genocide is wrong. Yeah. And yet the premises of his argument are plausible. So I need to figure out what, what assumptions is a skeptic making about knowledge and uh, which one of those assumptions is wrong. And that can actually drive positive epistemology. So when you consider skepticism in that way, you're not doing so to try to undermine the knowledge of your students, but you're Mm -hmm. doing it because it helps to drive positive epistemology. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, yeah, I had another thought, but I kind of lost it. But that's um, that's that's, I think, a reason, Luke, to take skepticism seriously in in, in a way of doing so that doesn't uh, lead to any kind of problematic loss of ordinary knowledge. What what would be plausible at all about these skeptical premises? Is it, we say we're comparing yeah. plausibility, right? Like, yeah, right. A common sense conclusion is more pl- yeah. plausible than, yeah, than the somewhat plausible premises of the skeptic. Yeah. Well, well, what would be plausible at all? Can you give us an a, a yeah? I'll give you an that? I'll give an example. Yeah. Here's a um. Here's one principle that you see in some skeptical arguments. It's called the Methodist requirement. And the idea is that uh, all of your beliefs are arrived at using some method, whether it's perception or memory or intuition or inferential reasoning or what have you. Um, But you can only have knowledge or justified belief uh, uh, in some proposition that's produced using some method if you first know that that method is reliable. So if, to get perceptual knowledge, you have to first know that perception is reliable or to get memorial knowledge, you have to know that memory is reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that that seems, um, I mean, on the face of it, right, without without deeper investigation, that doesn't sound too um, crazy. It sounds somewhat <laughs> almost sort of sophisticated, right? Oh, oh yeah, of course. I shouldn't yeah. be just assuming that my perceptual faculties are reliable. I need some kind of evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Um that's an example of a skeptical principle, I think, that is plausible at first blush. Mm-hmm. But when taken to its logical conclusion and put in tandem with other things, other premises in an argument, lead to the conclusion that no one knows anything at all. Mm. And that undermines skepticism itself, right? Because a skeptic is himself 
using some method to arrive at the premises in his skeptical argument. But if no one can know anything, if the, in other words, if his conclusion is right, he can't know the premises of his own argument. Yeah. And so the whole or thing the conclusion is like the house of cards that it is. Yeah. That's helpful. That's so, helpful and that, that there's a, so the, I mentioned that, th that this, this kind of thinking can drive positive epistemology. So what's the, what's the lesson we learned from this? The lesson we learned from this is that in fact, it is possible to arrive at knowledge using a method without first being able to prove that that method is reliable. And that's say, very, say, say that again. <laughs> yeah. The lesson we learn is that we can, in fact, use a method to gain knowledge without first being able to prove that that method is reliable. So I can use is perception. That, is that called something? Knowledge. What's that's, that? That's is that called something? Everything has um, a name. So you calling that particularism or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Particularism. Um, the idea that we can know particular propositions like, yeah, I have a hand or I exist or there are other people in the world. Uh Particularism it, it adopts that approach. Yes, that you can know particular truths about the world without first uh, uh, being able to explain how you know or to prove that you know what you claim to know. Um, I'm familiar with a something that Chisholm wrote. Um, yeah, and I think that are you drawing from that or are you drawing some from? Yeah, something I mean, else? Chisholm is in this common sense tradition. I, I would okay. count Chisholm as a common sense philosopher. Roderick Chisholm. Yeah. He's exactly. come up before on the podcast. Trent Doherty mentioned him. Yes. Trent and Doherty this, was ecstatic about Chisholm. Yeah, Chisholm is great. And this, um, Luke, this <laughs> this point about being able to know using a method without first proving the method is reliable is very congenial to common sense epistemology because most people don't have theories that explain or prove that they know what they know. Yeah, that's right. And so if that's really a requirement on knowledge, then most ordinary people really wouldn't know anything. Only only yeah. specialists in epistemology would know anything mm -hmm. or cognitive scientists, maybe. So, um, yeah, so so that's an example of how taking skepticism seriously can actually give you positive results in epistemology. So you argue elsewhere and we don't have to exactly go to the other paper right now exactly but i think it'd be helpful if i just brought it up and then we can jump back and forth if you want um to the ecumenical morianism yeah paper. yeah folks if you're a little bit turned off by these isms and these specific labels because you're not totally familiar with it yet just here's here's just some helpful advice I would give you is that um, some, sometimes you just have to listen carefully and, and catch what you can. And um, that can be very helpful. The philosophers, academic philosophers have a very technical language and there's shorthand for a lot of things. And that's just so that they can make their own really difficult, hard work faster and easier when they talk to each other. And sometimes it 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 can be a little bit intimidating if you're coming at it from the outside. But um, what you mean by ecumenical Mormonism in this paper is you're taking the good guy more, and I'm going to break it down a little bit. Hopefully this is helpful. And when you study philosophy, it, you're going to 
want to find the good guys <laughs> and and to for the lack of a better term you're you're gonna want to and feel free to push back on this jonathan if you want but what was helpful to me is i was looking for the good guys i was like who who's on my team here and i don't want to say that i know everything and i i'm right and i'm just looking for people that are on my team but when you're in these deep waters you need help i mean you really do because everything is up for grabs and that's overwhelming and it that's probably why most people don't major in philosophy but it's a very good exercise to tr go through this really deep work and you want the right people helping you along and and thank god there are good people in philosophy that can help you and so for me the study of philosophy was about finding the right mentors as it were or the right the the people that have common sense the people that know what they're talking about they're not idiots they don't make stupid mistakes. They might make some mistakes, but they're not stupid mistakes. <laughs> they're mistakes that I would have probably made. And, and you know, a lot of people, we all make mistakes in, in how we think about things, but they they get certain basic things right. And they're yeah. not going to lead you astray on really important things. No, I think, and, I think Luke, there's an act actually a really good reason for taking an approach like what you're describing. So if you, if you think that philosophy really is a science and the, and the broad... Uh, classical sense of that term, like a science as a, as a kind of scantia, the Latin word, S-C-I-E-N-T-I-A, meaning mm -hmm. a body of knowledge that starts from first principles and, and then using the tools of logic arrives at further knowledge through uh, valid inferences. If you think of philosophy as a kind of, philosophy has been going on for a very long time, right, for thousands of years. And so, and, and the, it's important to note that the questions of philosophy cannot be answered by what we call the natural sciences, so ge geology and astronomy and physics can't tell us what the purpose or meaning of life is, what the nature of justice is, for example. And so um, in philosophy, in fact, pre predates modern natural science uh, by by millennia. Um, so if if philosophy is a science and that broad, old fashioned understanding of the term, then it probably got true results a long time ago. People yeah. like Plato, Aristotle, Augustine. Aquinas, Thomas mm -hmm. Reed, and others in this in this tradition probably got some true results a long, long time ago. And so it, you don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? If you you know, you wouldn't do that in any other field. If you start studying mathematics at college, you wouldn't throw out everything that previous mathematicians have discovered and start over from scratch yourself. You wouldn't get very far. You wouldn't do the same, you wouldn't do that in biology or chemistry either, or even in history. You would learn from those who have gained actual insight into the nature of reality before you. And I think it's the same when we do philosophy. Now, um, if, on the other hand, philosophy is not a science, if it doesn't really deliver knowledge, then why do it? It's just like doing Sudoku or playing chess. It has no transcendent uh, redeeming value. So people that commit their lives to philosophy, I think, are implicitly presupposing that this is a field which can deliver knowledge. But if it can, it likely did so a long time ago, which means we be, should be paying attention to uh, the, the tradition of philosophy and finding people who have made these insights and trying to learn from them as best we can. Oh, that's beautifully said. I'm really glad you said that. So G.E. Moore is one of the good guys, right? At on least epistemology, on some one things, of the good yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. 
he uh, he he's a he's also a utilitarian in in normative ethics. So I would say okay. there he falters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can't have everything, and right. it's rare exactly. to find right the guy that you're like, oh, that's the man, and then I don't have to do it because he already did it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you got this other paper. Let's take a look okay. at this other paper here. Right. Um, you got Morianism. You argue that it's a metaphilosophy. It's really a metaphilosophical position. Right. What's metaphilosophy? <laughs> well, so that that's that, that's a good question. People people define that term and they mean different things by that term. What I mean by it in this context is that. Morianism is not, or common sensism, Morianism, readingism. I'll probably use the term Morianism, but if you don't like that term, you feel free to substitute common sensism or readingism. Um, is is Morianism is not an answer to uh, traditional um, first order debates in epistemology about the nature of justification. Um, uh, for, for 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 viewers that have a philosophical, some philosophical training, at least in epistemology. Um, you know, you, you would understand these terms, these terms when I say that Morianism is not an answer to the question of internalism versus externalism. It's, it's not even really uh, an answer to the question of foundationalism versus coherentism. Although most common senses are foundationalists, I argue in this paper that coherentists are free to be um, common sense philosophers, too. And there actually are coherentists who are common sense, uh, common senses, but most prominent being William Lycan. L y c a n very. I did not know. That. Hmm. Yeah, he's a coherentist and a common sensist. But um, it's it's really it's really a by metaphilosophical. I mean, it's sort of a higher order, second order perspective on uh, what to do when you are faced with a skeptical argument that has a radical conclusion, and let's say you don't know how to answer it. What's the rational thing to do there? Should you suspend your ordinary judgment? That you, that you exist, that you have hands, there's an external world, that recreational genocide is wrong. Should you suspend judgment about all these things and become an agnostic until you've got a good philosophical proof for these mm -hmm. propositions? Or is it more rational to maintain your ordinary, mundane, common sense knowledge, even though you can't answer for the moment the skeptic's challenge? And so Morinism says it's more rational for you to believe in these common sense propositions than it is to believe anything the skeptic is telling you. Yes. Common sense truths are epistemically superior to the skeptic's premises. And so you can, in virtue of that uh, epistemic superiority, you can use uh, your ordinary common sense mundane knowledge to reject the skeptic's argument. You may not know exactly which premise in the skeptic's argument is flawed just yet, you can know that there's a there's a flaw in the argument somewhere. So an, an example of this that some of your viewers Luke might be familiar with. Most people, even if they've never spent much time studying philosophy, are at least maybe heard of Zeno's paradoxes. Zeno was as an ancient Greek philosopher who was a student of another ancient Greek philosopher named Parmenides, and Parmenides and Zeno both gave sophisticated arguments for the conclusion that change is impossible. Now I would say there's almost nothing more obvious to us than that change is, is actual. And obviously if it's actual, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, you have this, you have this standard paradox that you get with skeptical arguments of, you know, some argument by Parmenides or Zeno might have seemingly plausible premises at first blush, but they lead to a completely implausible 
conclusion. And so what's the rational thing to do? Should you should you quit believing that change is real? No, of course not. You know that change is real. What the common sense philosopher says is that what you should do is say, well, I know that change is real. And if change is real, then Parmenides and Zeno are wrong somewhere. Therefore, Parmenides and Zeno are wrong somewhere. Now, if you're very philosophical, you might choose to try to figure out where Parmenides and Zeno get it wrong. But maybe you're not a philosophy student and you don't have or you don't have time to think about Parmenides and Zeno's arguments. That's fine. You can move on with your life without having to worry about whether change is real. (laughs) Move on with your life. Yeah. And, so like, and this this seems very unphilosophical because it seems to, to some people, to the critics of common sense philosophy, common senseism seems very unphilosophical. And therefore, it seems like it's not very intellectually respectable. But I would say there, I would say two things about that. Luke. For, for one thing, it's very philosophically respectable to believe what you have more reason to believe. And if it's really true that we have more reason to believe in common sense propositions than we do to believe whatever the skeptic is telling us, then the most rational thing to do is to stick with common sense. That's what's intellectually respectable, not giving that up for some fancy philosophical principle. And then I would say the other thing is that once you compare Morianism with the alternative um, responses to skeptical arguments, I think it's not difficult to see that, that it's really the most intellectually respectable option on the table. So I break the replies to concept to skepticism down into a few different types. Uh, if, if you don't mind, Luke, I'll take I'll take just a couple minutes to go through them, maybe. Sure. So before you, before, before you do, hold on. Yes, you were talking about Zeno's paradox. Yeah. Okay. The way I've taught that in class is, I move around in class. And I say, he said that movement is impossible. Yeah. All right. Now, how do we articulate this? What What's going on here? Yeah. You're going to believe Zeno or your lying eyes. And right. That, exactly. That's one way to do it. Right. Yep. So, exactly. Yeah. That's, and that's very similar to Moore's proof, right? right. Hey, I've got, I've got hands. And if I do, there's an external world. Yeah, exactly. And, and Thomas Reed said, um, why should we why should we privilege reasoning over perception? In other words, why should we say that percept what he meant by that is why should we think that perception is unable to give us knowledge unless it's first vindicated by reason? Because what you see in Parmenides and Zeno is a kind of disregarding of perception. We're going to take philosophical reasoning over perception. That's right. What Reed said is that both of these faculties come from the same workshop, mm. the, the, the divine workshop. Oh, that's good. And so if who, God who said, who said, Bible, that? who said the workshop? Yeah. The oh. divine, yeah. Oh, that, that's R-E-I-D. why it's familiar. I haven't re- read read in a while. <laughs> yeah. And so like if, um, okay. if, uh, if we, if we're trusting that our reasoning faculties can be reliable because they ultimately can be traceable back to the, to the divine workshop, hmm. then we also have to trust that our perceptual faculties can be also be, uh, assumed to be reliable because they hmm. come from the same workshop. Yeah as our reasoning faculties. And, 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 and uh, I think there's all, there's a, there's a point we can make off of that, um, which is that if you're an atheist and you, you, you think that your cognitive faculties are the product of a, of a process, which is blind and doesn't care about the truth, then you might have a good, good reason to worry about all of your cognitive faculties. Yeah. But if you're a theist and you think that there's a divine uh, author, that's ultimately the, uh, 
foundational explanation for your cognitive faculties. That gives you good reason to trust those faculties. Okay, so um, there's the concessive reply to skepticism, to skepticism, which that's just what skepticism is. It just gives up, uh, gives up the, the the game, bites the bullet, and says, "Yeah, we don't really know anything." There are other there are other replies that are what I call partially concessive, and I'll uh, I'll, I'll just give one example of this. Um, contextualism is a theory of knowledge which says that the standards for knowledge change with the context. So in a philosophy classroom, um, the standards for knowledge are really high. We demand certainty or um, maximal justification, let's say. And you really can't have that uh, for almost anything that you believe. And so in the in a philosophical context, you don't know that you have hands, let's say. But when you leave the philosophy classroom and you go on about your business, the standards from knowledge are operative in that context are different. They're lower and they're easier to meet. And so when you're just out, you know, going for a run or playing basketball or, you know, playing chess or whatever, there you really do know you have hands because the standards for knowledge in that context are lower. And um, this is a partially concessive uh, reply because it can it concedes to the skeptic that when you start talking about philosophy, no one really knows anything. Um, so it's I, I think that's not an ideal response. Um, a third response is a potential is what I call potentially concessive. Mm -hmm. And I call an, an example of that I give is what I call hyper rationalism. And hyper rationalism says that you can know that you have hands or, or whatever the skeptic is targeting. You can know that the skeptic is wrong only if you've got a proof. Or a philosophical argument that what the skeptic is saying is is incorrect. Mm. And that sounds very intellectually respectable. But the problem, Luke, is that most people don't have good philosophical arguments that the skeptic is wrong because most people aren't philosophers. Right. And even in the philosophical community, epistemology is only, only one subdiscipline within that within that whole field. So people that do philosophy of law or philosophy of art or political theory or whatever, ethics, mm -hmm. they might not know of any good responses to the skeptic. Are you telling me that those people don't know they have hands or they don't know that other minds <laughs> exist? Yeah. Again, that just seems silly. And well, especially you if you, especially if you have to write a philosophy paper with your hands, with your hands that's right. And you got to turn it in or you're going to fail the class. That's right. I mean, it's and like, so, well, how, can I put that in the paper? I think the only truly non-concessive reply to the skeptic that allows us to safely hold on to our ordinary knowledge is really the common sense reply, which says that you can know without philosophical, a philosophical demonstration of where the skeptic goes wrong. You can know that the truths of common sense are, are actually, that they're, that, that they're true, that those propositions are true. You can, you can have that knowledge, even if you can't prove that where the skeptic goes wrong. Mm. And that's the way we really operate. I think, I mean, no yeah. one actually really doubts whether they exist or whether they have hands or whether yeah. there are other minds, despite what they may say in print, despite what they may say at a philosophy conference, despite what they may say in the philosophy classroom, no one actually lives as if they don't know these things. Yes. So there's an authenticity that you're noticing. It's a, it's right. an integrity issue. It's an authenticity issue. It's a, a living your life issue. Right. And you're looking for a theory because that's what philosophy does. Right. Wouldn't be philosophy. Otherwise you're looking right. for a theory, a way to articulate 
this integrity that we right. have and we when we live our life and what we believe about right. knowledge and reality and uh right and wrong right for example the common sense philosopher assumes that human cognition is basically trustworthy it's basically reliable not infallible no one's saying that human cognition is infallible only god we're, has we're human exactly the air <laughs> yeah. is air is human only god has an infallible cognition um the skeptic is assuming basically that human cognition is not reliable but if human cognition is basically not reliable why should we trust anything the skeptic is telling us Hmm. why does the skeptic's philosophical reasoning get a pass when all other human cognition doesn't it it, i think there's a kind of deep incoherence in the whole skeptical project and i think the answer is much more is much more faithful to to the way that we actually live our lives and the way that we actually uh, navigate reality. I might be a simpleton on this uh, stuff, Fuquay, but I feel like when I came to philosophy, um, I was just really concerned about what camp, what was going on on the campuses, and I yeah. I couldn't articulate it. I didn't have a theory about it exactly. I. I I mean, if you were pressed me on a theory, I would have said the communists are taking over <laughs> um, something like that. But and actually, I wasn't too far wrong about that. But um, the. The big idea that really breathed fresh life into my studies and gave me a lot more energy to handle the, these try, try to plow, plow through these really hard articles to read and stuff like that have these kind of conversations that you have to have with philosophers uh, the way they want to have them was finding out there were common sense people in this industry for lack of a better word and that i had to figure out what they were saying and how they were saying it who they were talking to and that was a way for me to move forward and make sense of it in a way that I could understand. And then I could also appreciate enough to teach it for a long time, for many years, because otherwise I couldn't, I I would felt like I was hurting my students if I didn't link them with this common sense tradition. Right. Cause that's gets back to the issue of whether philosophy really does deliver knowledge or not. And yeah, Right. Uh, Whether it, you're doing something productive or you're just exactly. wasting time or right. actually hurting people. Yeah. Right. And if you if you assume, as the common sense tradition does, that human cognition is basically reliable and that the the truths of common sense are good starting points for deeper reflection, then you can get a body of knowledge from that. But if you assume the way that the skeptics do that human cognition is basically unreliable, you're never going to get a body of knowledge using a set of faculties that are basically unreliable. So if philosophy is going to be profitable at all, it's got to be uh, because we're drawing from this common sense tradition, which I would argue goes back at least to Aristotle, if not even if not even further. I um, agree with you on that. And yeah. there, there's, it's it's kind of a myth, I think, that common sense philosophy is is uh, goes back only to G.E. Moore or even only to Thomas Reed. There's a there's a good British philosopher uh, named Stephen Bolter, B-O-U-L-T-E-R. Again, if any of you viewers want to go deeper on this, Bolter argues that the scholastics were common sense philosophers. No way. Yeah, it's a, um, 
he argues in a couple places. Uh, he's got a book called Why Medieval Philosophy Matters. He's got a whole chapter Ooh. in this book on the meta philosophy of the scholastics, where he argues that basically they were common sense philosophers. And Stephen, of course, Stephen with a V or Stephen with a PH? PH. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, and I think this goes right back to the uh, to Plato and Aristotle, more more so to Aristotle than to Plato. But, um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that reference. Yeah. Uh, going back to evolutionary debunking. Okay. Yeah. What's this have to do with evolution and how, okay, how does, and, and atheism too? Right. 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 So, um, so the, the, this work we're talking about today, Luke, uh, um, it, it, it comes from these publications that ultimately are based on my dissertation. Um, and what I noticed um, as a PhD student is that I is that I was uh, really attracted to the common sense response to skepticism as, as the best one. And at, at, I was also very interested in ethics and specifically in moral epistemology. Like, how do we know? moral truths and yeah. there's a lot of m moral skepticism in our culture today including in academic philosophy unfor unfortunately and it seemed to me that um a lot of moral truths were just as rationally secure as the ordinary morian facts like i know that i have hands i know that i exist i know that there are other people etc and but no, uh, it didn't seem to me that people have really been making this point in print uh it was kind of a neglected um, way to respond to the moral skeptic to argue that there are moral facts that are also Morian facts. Yes. And therefore that these ethical or meta ethical Morian facts, uh, they are just as immune to revision in the face of skepticism as my knowledge that I have hands is. Right. And so, um, and so what um, this, this paper uh, meta ethical Morianism and evolutionary debunking, um is is our is articulating that argument um and so what i do is i argue basically that some of the more some of the morian common sense facts are um are moral facts and the, the example you alluded to earlier uh raping children for fun is wrong uh one i um example i give in another paper which i mentioned earlier is that recreational genocide is wrong that, that comes from a paper in 2021 called ethical morianism and what I do is I argue that there's a kind of epistemic symmetry between common sense truths like I have hands, I exist, there are other people, and moral truths such as recreational genocide is wrong. Uh, and I outline uh, several of these symmetries. Um, and so let me just run through these um, in just, a, just just you take maybe 60 to 90 seconds to run through some of these. So and you, you call it a Morian truth because yeah. just the name of the guy is named G.E. Moore. The right. And then you yeah. just add and you say what he said we could believe, which is what you already do believe. Right. We're just going to call that a Morian truth for the purpose right. of a philosophy exactly. paper. Okay. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. So um, no, normal Morian facts are, are, uh, are typically extremely plausible. They have a they have a very high initial plausibility. So it's very plausible that I have hands. It's very plausible that other people exist. Likewise, the proposition that recreational genocide is wrong seems to me just to be about as plausible as anything else I could possibly believe. So that's that's a that's a, that's a, and 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 like the uh, the proposition that I exist or that I have hands, the proposition that recreational genocide is wrong is much more um, plausible or reasonable than anything the skeptic could tell me to the contrary. So that's the that's the first symmetry. Yeah. Second symmetry is that um, 
uh, neither type of proposition requires academic expertise to know. I, I don't need any kind of specialization in, in, uh, or spe technical expertise to know I have hands, to know that there are other people, or to know that recreational genocide is wrong. They're both, ex they're both accessible to any properly functioning human being. A third, uh, a third sim uh, epistemic symmetry is that both can be believed non-inferentially or in, in planting as terminology in the properly basic way. That is, I can know that I exist without proving that I exist. I can know that I have hands without having a philosophical proof that I have hands. Likewise, it seems I can know that recreational genocide is wrong even if I can't prove it. So there's a third symmetry. Yeah. A fourth one is that um, both sorts of propositions are nearly universally endorsed. Almost everyone believes there are other minds. Very few solipsists out there. Yeah. And likewise, almost everyone believes that recreational genocide is wrong. Right. And then finally, both in both cases, what we believe is so obviously true that we take it for granted. We don't yeah. even need to articulate it. Just like I don't go around telling people, oh, I have hands or I exist yeah. Um, yeah. or there are other minds. Likewise, I don't go around articulating, hey, did you know the recreational genocide is wrong? Because I can expect that any properly functioning person will have a belief that it's wrong. Let me let me just briefly press into that a little bit. You're saying. And feel free to press back because that's kind of the point of what I'm doing here. Um. You're saying one way to look at what you're saying is there's a high degree of psychological certainty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how do you respond to that? Do you, yeah, how do you good, add good. to that? Yeah. So it's not, it, it's true that there is a high degree of psychological certainty, but it's just not subjective certitude. I would say that these common sense truths, we have more reason to believe that they are true than we do to believe what the skeptic is telling us. Okay. So um, take, 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 for example, the proposition that I have hands. I can see that I have hands. That's, that's perceptual evidence. I can feel that I have hands. That's another type of perceptual evidence. Other people tell me I have hands. That's testimonial evidence that I have hands. I can make predictions. Okay, if I have hands, I'm able to pick up this coffee cup. Oh, I picked up the coffee cup. Therefore, I do have hands, right? Um, and so I've got a lot of uh, reason to believe that I do in fact have hands now. Now G E Moore didn't go through all that. He didn't if, go if through go all back, that. If you go to the original source, you read through that. He doesn't do that. What you just did, but that, that, no, that he, was very helpful. Thank you. He does say that I have certain evidence or conclusive evidence is the way he put it, that I have hands. He said, even if I can't say what the evidence is, I have, mm -hmm. I have conclusive evidence. Okay. And, and think about this, that we can evaluate evidence without being epistemologists. If we couldn't, then the whole jury system that trial oh, by jury would, would be, be screwed. Would be, yeah, it'd be screwed. Exactly. So G. Moore's like, look, I don't need a theory of evidence to know I've got very strong evidence for thinking that I have hands. Now, conversely, think about the Methodist requirement. Remember, that's one of the skeptics principles that you can only have knowledge if you know in advance that the method you use to arrive at a certain belief is, is reliable. Well, what's my what's what reason do I have to believe that? I mean, I. The only reason I could possibly have is I have a rational intuition that it's true. Okay, that's some evidence. You know, I think intuitions, I, I, I subscribe to the view that intuitions can do provide us with evidence. But that's the only piece of evidence I have. I have no, I have no confirmational evidence. I can't make predictions on the basis of that and get more reason to think that it's true. 
I, I have no perceptual evidence that it's true because it's an epistemic principle. It's not the sort of thing that you can get perceptual evidence for. I have no testimonial evidence that it's true because most of the people who think about this principle are epistemologists and most of them reject it. <laughs> so I really have no reason to think that the Methodist requirement is true, except for the fact, if it's a fact, that I happen to, it ha- might happen to seem to be true to me. Hmm. But Luke, in my case, it doesn't even seem to be true. <laughs> so I really did, have did no it evidence. ever Did it ever seem to be true to you? No, it never seemed to be, never seemed to me to be true. So I have to I, admit, I, it seemed to be true to me at one point. Yeah, I had, I'd be converted. So I think we do have more reason to believe the truths of common sense. It's not just psychological certitude. I would say it's it, there's the total evidence favors the truths of common sense over the skeptics premises. Hmm. Well, so um, and so then by extension, if um, if certain moral truths are, are on epistemically on par with the with the non moral common sense propositions that gives us a good reason to think that they are also immune to revision in the face of philosophical arguments to the contrary. Yes. So that's the basic idea of what I call ethical moralism. What's a, what's evolutionary debunking. Okay. So good. You go go through that, right? Yeah. Yeah. In this paper, I, I, um, I, I apply this meta ethical moral position to a specific skeptical moral skeptical argument the evolutionary debunking argument and this is a very popular argument um among mm. academic philosophers who are also moral skeptics this is yeah. one of the yeah. their the, one of their favorite arrows in their quiver so to speak and the basic idea of the argument is that um is that our is that our moral beliefs are produced by natural selection which is an off-track process meaning that natural selection doesn't track the moral facts. It doesn't. It doesn't lead to um, the evolution of our moral faculties in such a way that those moral faculties are likely to track moral reality. What natural mm-hmm. selection cares about, to personify it, is is just simply reproductive fitness. It doesn't care about moral truth. Yes. And you can be reproductively fit without having a lot of true moral beliefs. Right. And so if it, and so the thought is that it would just be a kind of miraculous coincidence if this off track process just so happened to give us a reliable set of moral beliefs. And what we mean by reproductive fitness, let's just get. Let's just say what that is. Yeah. P- passing on your genes. Yeah. It's an not, and, you know, anybody. Any freshman in college that got an F in philosophy can do this and got an F in biology and F in logic. <laughs> and they probably are. And, you know, unfortunately, we have abortion in our culture, so that's not reproductive fitness and sense of abortion. But in terms of like reproduction, right, that, you know, we all know what's right. involved in that. It's as simple right. as that. It's that right. kind of act. And that's it. There's no, there's nothing else to it. Right. And then enough food for the, the, um, the offspring and, uh, you know, safety, all the stuff that's necessary, oxygen, water, uh, decent climate. And, and then they do the same thing and they do the same thing and, and just times a million. (laughs) That's what you mean by reproductive fitness. Right. So what's that have to do with morality? In other, in other words, that what does that have to do with morality? 
Yeah. So it seems to undermine our, if, it, if the argument actually works, it would undermine all of our moral beliefs because in essence, what you, the argument would give you a reason to think that your moral beliefs are produced by an unreliable cognitive faculty, a, co a cognitive faculty that was produced by a process that cares not a whit for moral truth, mm -hmm. but cares only about survival of the fittest or reproductive fitness. So, yeah. Okay. Now from the common sense perspective, um, common sense epistemology perspective, the right thing to think here is that, no, wait a minute, I really do know that recreational genocide is wrong. And so the debunking, evolution debunking argument must be wrong somewhere. There must be some false premise, or um, maybe the argument's invalid, maybe the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises, but something is wrong with it. Um, and that's exactly how you would, that's exactly how a common sense epistemologist reasons in, in the face of external world skepticism. So the skeptic is telling me, I don't know that I have hands. Well, wait a minute, I do know that I have hands. So let me, <laughs> the skeptic is wrong somewhere. Let me figure out where. Likewise, ethical or meta-ethical Mormonism make, makes the same sort of move. And so what I do in the paper is I argue that uh, when you actually look at the debunking argument, it actually turns out to be not very plausible. And, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of is meant to redeem the common sense Morian claim that uh, common sense facts are more plausible than skeptical premises to the contrary. So let me just lay out some of the some of the problems with the evolutionary debunking argument. Okay. Problems that lower its plausibility. So one is what I call the too much skepticism worry, which is that um, it's very difficult to calibrate a evolutionary debunking argument in such a way that you get skepticism about moral beliefs, but not about other beliefs. Mm -hmm. So, Luke, you're probably familiar with Alan Plantinga's um, evolutionary argument against naturalism. Yes, it's been a few years, but yeah. Yeah. So for I, your for your for, for your viewer, some time in it. Yeah. Uh, the the basic idea of the argument is just that um, if our cognitive faculties in general are the product of naturalistic evolution, not theistic evolution, but naturalistic evolution. Sure. Then we have um, no reason to think that that they're reliable, because what naturalistic evolution cares about again is reproductive fitness, not about truth. Right. And let's let's pause really quick and just say yeah. that's the official line in public schools. That's I, right. I naturalistic from my evolution. Yeah, because yeah. it's got to be. Um, I uh, that's my understanding of it is that the understanding is that science cannot take any kind of cognizance the way it's taught in public schools that science or whether the way that it should be taught in public schools according to this view whether right. a particular christian biology teacher articulates it that way i'm not you know there's probably right. a lots of examples that that where they they don't really hear to the view but but the view is that um that science properly understood and that's their view that science properly understood cannot bring in any explanatory principle that's not a physical system or right. a physical property right. so by definition then the supernatural would not count as right. a causal role in this for scientific purposes right and so therefore it wouldn't have anything to do in a biology classroom right Does that sound fair to you sounds sounds fair to me and to the to the extent that that evolution is taught that way in a public school uh the it's unwittingly sowing the seeds of 
the radical skepticism in the minds of the students. Yes. Because the, the ultimate process, which, which leads to the evolution of the human mind, is, is, is a blind, impersonal, purposeless process that cares not one whit for truth. Right. Well, and if that's the process that produces your cognitive faculties in general, why well, think they're trustworthy? That's, and so there's actually been people have argued in print that if planting as argument works, sorry, if the if the evolutionary debunking argument against morality works, that implies also the success of planting as argument, which undermines all of our cognitive faculties. Mm-hmm. But if all of our cognitive faculties are undermined, so are the ones we use to arrive at the truth of evolutionary biology itself. <laughs> so are the cognitive faculties that debunker uses to arrive at her premises. So this debunking argument ends up being self-defeating at the end of the day. So that really, um, and th- other other philosophers, Luke, have argued that the evolutionary debunking argument also threatens to undermine um, the natural sciences. It threatens to undermine mathematics. It threatens to undermine epistemology itself. So, um, and so at the beginning of the next day, because you said at the end of the day, so the and then night goes, and then at the beginning of the next day, when you ask for funding for the legislatures for these institutions of higher education and uh you know k through 12 why should we give it more funding right i mean that's the, and just to bring it back to politics but yeah right. all your all your stuff say right you're saying is by the way we're headed towards some political re- uh, reflections after this so yes we are yes yeah. um so that's um that's that's uh not i mean so that's that's one major concern with the evolutionary debunking argument, I think, is that it yeah. implies a okay. very broad form of skepticism, which is ultimately self-defeating. Um, and th- but there are other uh, empirical, what I call empirical worries about it, too, which is um, one of which is that um, some of our moral beliefs are, are not what we would expect if those beliefs were actually the product of natural selection. So, so I, I point out in the paper that a lot of philosophers have argued that our morality, uh, the morality that we we think is correct is, is strikingly more inclusive than what we would expect if those beliefs were just solely the product of natural selection. So, for example, we we tend to believe today that all people, whether they are inside of our in-group or in some out-group, deserve respect. We tend to even think, even if we don't believe, even if we're not strong believers in animal rights, we do tend to think that animals do have some kind of value. For example, we would probably agree that it's wrong to torture animals for fun. Um, and and uh, we believe that all people have basic uh, natural rights that should be respected by their governments. But these are not these sort of inclusive beliefs are not the sort of beliefs we would expect people to have if their moral beliefs were solely the product of natural selection. Hmm. So what, what this means is that at least some of our beliefs were not the product of natural selection so that the evolutionary debunking argument wouldn't actually apply to all of our moral beliefs but only, only would apply to some of our moral beliefs even, even if it works so it's not going to it's not going to get the wholesale skepticism that the debunker actually is looking for right gotcha but there there, there are many many other worries some of which i discuss in this paper one, one is that um beliefs don't look don't look to be genetically inheritable anyway <laughs> yeah and so you can't literally inherit um moral beliefs from your genetic ancestors mm-hmm. um oh let's see um oh a, a final worry i'll mention um and again if the viewers want more details they can they can take a look at the paper this paper i think is posted Am on I? my academia.edu account 
Okay. Am I able to link something for everybody to click on yeah. this if they want? Yeah, I can send you. Yeah, I can send you links for the for the show notes or whatever. Okay. Cool. Um, a final worry I'll just mention is that um, it's uh, it's 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 not problematic to concede that evolutionary influences might have um, evolutionary factors might have influenced our moral beliefs. Um, what the debunker needs is a stronger claim that we're not able to correct for those influences. Hmm. The debunker needs to show that not just that our moral beliefs were influenced by non-moral factors like fitness, but also that they were not influenced by moral factors. But how could evolutionary biology, a natural science, show that our moral belief formation was not guided by moral facts? That's not part of the that's not part of the competence or domain of evolutionary biology. Yeah. So it's a, it's I, I think a category mistake, right? <laughs> it's a category mistake, exactly. Yeah. So when you when you um when you look at the evolutionary debunking argument from the perspective of common sense epistemology, I think what you see is that there's much less reason to believe what the debunker is telling us than, than there is to believe that recreational genocide is wrong. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Wow. Hey, can, do you mind if we uh, just ref, uh, can we get a, an idea of who you are and where you teach briefly? Just yeah. uh, people might see your haircut and think you're in the military and they might just wonder basic things like, what is this guy? Uh, I mean, where does he where do you live and stuff? Like, yeah. Which, a little a little bit about like could just to show you're a normal human person. Yeah, and you're I'm not you're not normal. like an alien or something. No, no, I I, I live in Northwest Missouri. I, I teach philosophy full time at Conception Seminary College, which is an undergraduate seminary. Um, uh, we train uh, uh, young men who are discerning uh, priesthood in the Catholic Church, so they're all getting a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and I'm one of the philosophy professors at that seminary. And I, I've been married for 20 years, and my wife and I have five children. Um, yeah, just a very normal, uh, normal guy who, uh, loves to think about these very difficult and perplexing, but fascinating questions. Um, you have, but you have books and you have a file cabinet behind you and you got a yep. brick, uh, brick wall. Is that a real yep. brick wall or is that it's like a, real a brick wall? Okay. Yeah. Sitting, sitting in the base of my house here in Northwest Missouri, which is constructed in 1912. What's the temperature like in that basement right now? Oh, I don't know, but it feels really good. It's almost a hundred outside. Oh yeah, I bet. And it's um, muggy. I bet muggy. But I'm yeah, I'm a very ordinary guy who got who just got interested in philosophy when I went to college, and and the, the a lot of the beliefs I, I yeah, I your background up. is interesting because you were a jock. You were you played jock, yeah. You played football. Yep. I, I went to philosophy. I went to college um, on a football scholarship. I was a PE major. And yeah, I was not, I was not very intellectual in high school at all. Your ma your co college major was physical education. Physical is that education. right? Yeah. I, I just want, I, I, I wanted to go back. And uh, when I was done college, I just wanted to be a PE teacher and a high school football coach. Um, and those of you listening, if you take a look at Jonathan on the, on the YouTube, you'll see, you know, you see the jock still there. You still <laughs> lift and stuff. Do you still yeah, work out? Yeah. I work out all the time. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, when I got to college, um, a couple of things happened. Uh, my, the moral and religious beliefs I, I had grown up with were challenged. 
by not not just by fellow students, but by my professors. And and they weren't mean about it, like in the um, the God's Not Dead movies. They they weren't mean about <laughs> yeah. it. They were very nice, you know, ac- academic people I respected a lot. And they just raised objections to Christianity, for example, or some some of my uh, traditional moral beliefs, uh, like that abortion was wrong. I didn't really know how to answer. And and um, I realized that if I was going to um, answer their objections and 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 think through these issues in a in a responsible way, I had to I had to study philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- philosophy, um, for all of its seeming abstractness, arises out of very ordinary concerns. You know, like we we like like to, like we're, one thing we're debating in our country right right now is the, the justice of affirmative action. You know, Supreme Court recently handed down a decision that's very unpopular on the on the left. Um, and under underneath that constitutional debate, there's a moral debate, right? Is affirmative action just or unjust? Well, that, that depends. What's justice? Mm-hmm. So it, to really settle the matter, you got to do moral philosophy, right? Um, or what happens to me when I die? That's something everyone thinks about. Well, that, that, that depends. Are, are you just a, a meat bag or do you have a soul? Oh, well, how do I answer that question? Well, I got to do philosophy, right? Oh, what's the purpose and meaning of life? You, you can't answer that doing history or doing chemistry or accounting. You, you have to do, you have to think philosophically. You, about you might that. have flashes of insight while you're studying those things, yes. but what yes. you're saying is that's the flash of insight is one thing that that's different than saying that the curriculum itself has as its subject matter, right? The meaning of life, which right. it does not, which okay. it does not. And then, so let's say you go to college and you're learning about, you're learning facts in chemistry class, you're learning a different set of facts in your psychology class, a different set of facts in your history class, and maybe you're studying world religions. How do you put all this together into a systematic, integrated view of reality? I mean, that, these, that other would be nice. these other disciplines don't tell you that. Yeah. They just give you piecemeal perspectives on this or that aspect of reality. But we want to know the truth about the whole and how it all hangs together, how it all fits together. Only, That's only very attractive. That that the way you just said that that's very attractive about philosophy. So yeah, so that's how that's how I got into philosophy. Integrating it, yeah, yeah. What the what the heck does does it all make sense when you look at everything, or right. is it just you have to close your mind? A lot of people believe that about religion. You have to, oh, you go to church. Oh, that's nice. Uh, and I think the assumption is kind of like you close your mind. Right? There's probably something weird and distorted in your soul. You have to close your soul. And you go into this building and you do some weird stuff that makes you feel good. Right. And then when someone dies, it helps you in right. that time. So it's all for you. You're, you, you're probably hyper worried about that. And then right. meanwhile, I'm just living my life. We live very disintegrated compartmentalized lives. I think in the modern world where we, we if you go to church or maybe you don't normally go to church, but maybe you go to church for a baptism or a wedding or a funeral, and that that fulfills some need in your life. And then, but you might have a totally different set of beliefs that you operate out of Monday through Saturday, and, and then a totally different set of beliefs that you operate out of at work versus when you're at home. And so we have these very disintegrated, compartmentalized lives. I think that's in part because philosophy is not studied very widely in our culture anymore. Yeah, and it's partly just a coping mechanism too. I mean, it's for dealing with very difficult circumstances. But yes, you're right. There is a there's a deeper issue there, I think. 
Now, <clears throat> where did we cover all of the evolutionary debunking stuff yet? Or... Covered the. I think we covered the main idea. Yeah, that I want to get out on the table, which is that there's not there's not very strong reasons to think that the evolutionary debunkers' premises are true. Yeah, and so those premises are epistemically inferior to the common sense moral truth that recreational genocide is wrong. I, I want to tell you a brief story. In 2015, I taught the most I'd ever taught. I, I made six figures as an adjunct professor that year. Wow. Back when making six figures meant something in Los Angeles, very quickly meant nothing <laughs> with inflation and this the crazy stuff that happened later. But um, I was working really, really hard and it was, it was excruciating. It was really excruciating parts of it, mainly because, uh, it was so painful. Um, it's hard to articulate because when you're working that much as an adjunct professor, you have such a wide variety of experiences, at least I did in Los Angeles and, Though what I'm talking about with the pain is the worst experiences that I had, because there would off there would be the worst classes like I've ever had, and where I saw the corruption of the of the campuses and the corruption of the culture, the decay of the culture, and how it's affecting students. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. At Los Angeles Pierce College in Los Angeles. I was using the example you gave of rape, knowing rape is wrong, knowing it's true that it's wrong as, as an example. And I got pushback from the students. And uh, so I did a, a class poll and not a single student said that they believed that it's true that rape is wrong. Wow. And the disturbing thing about that year in 2015 is that was not the only time or the only school in Los Angeles where I had those results. And so, okay, a little bit of the etiology of the Republican professor. I just happened to notice what, I mean, you can't not notice as you walk through most college campuses, the they're entirely Democrat. And in fact, at the time, I think it was like there was a, a libertarian professor of economics that was making some critical comments about the, the union or something. And I mean, they were raking her over the coals like she was a witch in New England in the 1600s. And I mean, she wasn't even a Republican. To say a republic, I mean, that's what I'm trying to say is she wasn't even the worst case. And I, I became really conscious that I was even if I if I would have been widely known as a Republican, which I was eventually, but because uh, I debated the pro uh, I debated abortion in front of the whole school uh, at one point. And by the way, we won the debate. It was me and an, a Catholic guy. Uh, I'm Protestant, but this this other guy has a PhD in philosophy. He's Catholic. I think he had a PhD from St. Louis, and we we did a good job. 
and we were we were basically debating the pagans in front of the entire school it was like 200 people there and the college president and the trustees and i think elected official was there like the assembly member or something city council person was there and and um a person from the student newspaper came up to me and said i don't know if they ever ran a story on it i didn't follow up but uh the student writing for the student newspaper said he was shocked that we won it was she was shocked like and i i was just like it was it wasn't surprising to me at all like mm. but but that's how compartmentalized people are in los angeles that they they all i was doing was integrating knowledge mm. that's what we were doing right anyway so i so this issue of the students, I know, I just noticed none of them were Republicans that were saying this, that, that you, that's not true that rape is wrong. And I started noticing these patterns and, you know, it's not a scientific thing. It's anecdotal, right. but I couldn't deny it in my experience, this, this profound sense that I was in the middle of a dark battle for the souls of people and and the soul, as it were, of the institution itself, which is really, it's not just the individual people, but it was the, it was the culture and the the institution, like on a massive scale, not just this one, but this one and this one and this one, and and um, I had this experience at Loyola Marymount too, which is supposed to be a Catholic school, where that same year, I think it was the same year. Um, I had a uh, particular student that um, had complained about me during the semester, and it, what that's that wasn't normal, but it seemed to get more and more. I wasn't doing anything differently, but the students were changing, and the students were. Uh, we had this discussion in class about whether it's true that rape is wrong, and. And this, this girl was disagreeing with that in class and, and, uh, she, I think she said that I made her feel uncomfortable or something like that. And I, and I, so I had these meetings or something. I was just like, you have to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about whether it's true that rape is wrong. And she's saying, no, mm -hmm. how do you think that makes me feel like right. presumably she didn't. She thought Who it was a talking to, to you know, yeah, yeah, and and that, and so it, it was. To admit that rape was wrong. Yeah, and she immediately pulled a victim card, but but it made no rational sense given what she was saying. Anyway, right. I, I it was just demonic. It was it was straight from the pit of hell, and and I didn't really feel like the institution was doing a good job at all of protecting vulnerable faculty members. Of course, she wanted great inflation too. And it's all tied together. So for me, this is a a very emotional topic because it, I've seen it firsthand, like really in Los Angeles, I've taught at 12 schools and I've seen like a, a variety of different situations, like the private Christian schools and, and, and five community colleges, which are all government schools, two different big Cal states and is that i think that's it right biola azusa pepperdine loyola marymount cal lutheran so that's five 
Live Community College. Yeah, so 12. Yep. So um, I, I feel like I have a, uh, in terms of anecdotes, a pretty wide sample and 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 i would say representative sample because los angeles is incredibly diverse in terms of like real diversity and um so as i look at the as as i look at the college culture from that time and i'm assuming it's very similar other places um this is a live what we're talking about is like life and death for your soul I think, and as well as for the health of, of our culture and our, our institutions. Yeah, no, I think um, you're right about that. Yeah. just want to share that. So do you want to say anything more about this, um, this paper? Or... Um, no, I don't think so. Um, do you, do you want to, you want to go to the Trump paper? Sure. Or... We can do that. Um, the, the, I, um, let, let me let me pause it real quick. Hold on. So, what does this all have to do with God's existence? Okay, good question. Because I think there is a there is a connection that can be drawn here. Um, there's a there's a an argument for God's existence that used to be more popular than it is called the common consent argument or the consensus gentium argument for for theism. And I think there's a, there's a connection with common sense epistemology. So, common sense epistemology endorses the idea. <clears throat> that widespread agreement that some proposition P is true is evidence that that proposition is true. And uh, there's, there's a philosopher who's been writing on this argument recently named Matthew Braddock. And he has a paper called Resuscitating the Common Consent Argument for Theism, where he names this idea that widespread agreement is evidence. He calls it the common consent principle. So notice that this common consent principle, first of all, before we get to any application to religious belief, it strongly favors common sense truths because common sense, common sense truths enjoy widespread agreement, mm -hmm. whereas skeptical premises, to the contrary, don't enjoy any agreement whatsoever. There's different skeptical arguments, so it's not like all the skeptics even agree amongst themselves about which skeptical premises they should be using to debunk common sense. So there's no there's no higher order agreement about skeptical premises, but there's a lot of widespread agreement about common sense truths. That's one reason to think that common sense truths are epistemically superior to skeptical pre 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 premises. Okay, now we can apply this idea of common consent as evidence to belief in God. And this is what Braddock has been doing in his published work. And he uses sociological research to argue that upwards of 90 percent of people throughout the history, throughout the world today uh, believe in the existence of what he calls a high God. So high God is a God that creates and governs the world. And so belief in a high God is is actually compatible with the, with the polytheism as long as you posit a high God above the, the pantheon of gods. And in fact, most polytheistic people do posit kind of a supreme deity that kind of rules over the lower deities. And so if it's true that common consent or widespread agreement is evidence, widespread agreement that proposition P is true is evidence for P. And if it's also true that there's widespread agreement that a high God exists, that is a God who, who governs providentially the, the world, then uh, um, there's, uh, there's strong evidence from this widespread agreement 
that such a high God does in fact exist. Now, this evidence uh, could be, def the justification it provides could be defeated if there were good objections to belief in God. And so to make the argument, to, to sort of round out the argument, you have to sort of defend God's existence against some of the stock objections, um, which, is a, which is a topic for a whole nother set of conversations, right? About the, the problem of evil and right. uh, whether theistic belief is formed by wishful thinking or by some other unreliable cognitive mechanism or the, ra and the rationality of religious belief in general, and arguments for God's existence and all that stuff. But elsewhere, anyway, elsewhere, else when objections. Yeah, exactly. So. I just thought it was worth sort of flagging for viewers um, that um, this this principle that we accept in everyday life, that widespread agreement favors something. When applied to theistic belief, strongly points in the, in the direction of God's existence. Hmm. So that's awesome. Yeah, pretty cool. That's awesome. Do you uh, allow devices in your classrooms, <laughs> like uh, phones and stuff? How's that work? Um, at the beginning of the year, I always have to tell one or two students, "Hey, because I, I put it in my syllabus, and, and we talk about it on day one." I say, "No devices, you know, take notes the old-fashioned way." Oh wow! And um, I have to remind my students uh, sometimes, you know, once or twice at the beginning of the year, and after that, I don't have any problems with it. That's great. Praise God. I wish I could do that. See, that kind of, I, I think there's something to that institutional support for classroom discipline. Yes. And at the K through 12, I think it's even more important, but it, it's still important in college. I don't know why people don't understand that. Anyway. Okay. So let's get into your Trump paper. Um, let me find it really quick. I'm going to share the screen. So, oh, you know, the, the, the version I have isn't really that fun to look at. Um, no. I'm so not sure if it would be that helpful to show it, actually. So for your viewers, this is a forthcoming book chapter. Okay. And uh, it's not at, the book is not published yet, but the uh, it's it's in press. So it's, mm -hmm. it's being worked on by the publisher as we speak. I'm not sure if it'll be out in 2023 or 2024. You have a co-author on this? I have a co-author on this and a mutual friend of ours and and. uh Shannon Holzer, who's been on mm -hmm. on your show before, Luke, and uh, we've both known Shannon for a very long time. He's he's a professor at Houston Christian University, mm -hmm. and really good guy and a good thinker. And yeah, we teamed up together co to co-author this paper. That's great. And it, we wrote again as as with all uh, pub publishing endeavors, the, the actual there's usually a gap between the you know pretty sizable gap between the time you start working on something and the time it actually comes out. Uh huh. So, yeah. Sometimes two, three, four, you know, years or, or more. So Shannon wow. and I started working on this paper. I want to say 2004. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when we first met <laughs> a while People ago. Like Trump? What are you talking about, Donald? It's been it's been it's been maybe at least eighteen months, if not even gotcha longer. So 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 what you're saying is the red. Uh, strike out through that whole sentence that's not going to be in the final it's not going to uh, be in the final oh, oh okay if uh luke if you pull that up on microsoft word and navigate your way to the review tab okay you should be able to how do i do that um so are you in google docs yeah maybe you can download, download it? it okay yeah or, or over here it looks like uh, uh let me stop sharing really quick 
and that that way I can see what I'm doing here. Did it download, yeah, or do yeah, I print yeah. it, or what? What do I do? Yeah, download it as a Word document. Okay. Go to the review tab, and then go to the tracking tab, and then click all click the markup, and and then hit no markup. Do you use a Mac? I use a Mac, yeah, but I type on Microsoft Word usually. Okay. All right. Let me pull it up. It's pulling up as pages because I don't have Microsoft Word on my. No, Mac. I don't know if you'll be able to. I don't know if you'll be able to do uh, to uh, to do what I'm talking about then. Oh, uh, okay. All right. To, to eliminate well, all I'll the red, it's not, it's not a big deal. Yeah, the red's still what? there. Red still. What there, I need to do so. is just upload a copy of this to my academia.edu page, and then when we link to. All right. They can we'll do go that. on there and get a clean copy. Okay. So the you're talking about, and I, some people are rolling their eyes right now. They're like, oh, this all goes to Trump. Okay, all right. We now know what's going on here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this yeah, is so, what your real agenda was. Yeah, our real agenda. Um, the, the paper is not, it's not really a defense of Trump per se. It's more a defense of Trump voters. And it's actually a very weak and qualified defense of Trump voters like Luke, as you know, academics sometimes will defend and will sometimes qualify their theses to death so that they end up defending something that's some, yeah. some, not nearly as controversial. Yeah. Uh, and, and is therefore somewhat less interesting, honestly. Mm -hmm. So this, sure. this paper might might fall under that criticism that it's very qualified. It's a defense of Trump supporters. And it's it's the, the thesis of the paper is that Trump supporters are not wicked or irrational just in virtue of supporting Trump. Right. And did you have so somebody in mind in your family uh, when you was it aunt, your aunt Shirley? And that's what you thought of the whole time you're writing this. So most you're really the, defending your aunt Shirley. Exactly. I mean, I know a lot of Trump uh, Trump voters who are just normal, everyday, ordinary, good people. And yet I also um, have a lot of academic friends and um, and then who 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 act as though people who voted for Trump are, are somehow beyond the pale. Yeah, right? they must be right. idiots or um, or bigots just yeah. just in virtue of supporting Trump. And, and of course, we know this, how the leg legacy media uh, and a lot of politicians on the left treat Trump supporters as well. Um, well, I, 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 I'll just add really quick that yeah. in my experience of, of NLA, I always smile when I hear people talk about like from the heartland here in Missouri, you know, but when I'm in LA, I, I, every Republican was treated that way. Yeah. Every single one besides maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and he was more like kind of mocked right? some, sometimes justifiably so, but, but, uh, George Bush was treated that way. Um, Dan Quayle. I mean, I could keep going. Uh, Clarence Thomas. I cannot tell you the vitriol. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Well, actually, okay. Let me go back before. Um, John McCain. Um, Mitt Romney. I mean, I, I can't. So I would just point out, like, you know, Mitt Romney became a gentleman and a statesman all of a sudden when when trump was elected right 
you know, and it's like, well, just a few years ago, you were saying he was a racist and, right. uh, you know, um, it's yeah, like, I think it was in uh, 2012 when, when Biden said that uh, it was Romney. I think it was Romney. He had in mind wants to put African-Americans back in chains <laughs> well before Trump became a political figure. Sure. So, and you're talking about making it. Talking about social, sure. I mean, Paul Ryan is talking about social security reform, which is uh, any rational person that knows anything about the federal budget and has any kind of attention span would think that should be the first thing you talk about uh, right. the entitlement reform, because it's two thirds of the federal budget, actually a little bit more. And you're talking about two thirds of the federal budget is transferring a dollar from this person's paycheck to another person but in the middle the government takes a chunk out for itself and uh the democrats want that pie chart to grow more than two-thirds the republicans want it to go less than two-thirds and i point out to my students that it can only go up to 100 percent that it can't go past 100 percent i i don't know what you want to do with this discussion and that is why he's so uh, that's why he's so evil and uh i just you know i couldn't believe it you know he's hey, ayn rand you know this and that and it's like well uh the facts on the ground are and he was catholic so they they they, had, they right. attacked that too so you know i mean they they were just in my experience they were it, it, the, the Trump was worse, but not really that much worse. I would right. say exactly yeah. a lot of a lot of Trump's uh, policies are just well within the mainstream of of, of Republican politics in general. Sure. sure, and 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 well within the mainstream of America the American political tradition. If you go back before yesterday, I mean, we talk about in the paper how Senator John uh, or Senator Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, supported. Uh, supported, voted for the Secure Fence Act in uh, 2006, oh, yeah. I believe it was, and called immigration, illegal immigration wrong, plain and simple. That's a direct quote. Um, no one accused uh, Chuck Schumer of being a, a xenophobic. But Trump supporters are accused of being xenophobic for wanting um, strong sure. border security measures. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. So it's not a new, it's not a new problem. I, I think it's a, it's the problem seems to be getting worse, if, if anything, the, the culture of contempt that we that we inhabit and People might be wondering what what does it have to do with philosophy? Well, mm -hmm. a couple a couple things. Number one, the idea that Trump supporters are wicked is a moral judgment. Mm. You're saying that they're wicked because they support unjust policies. You're making a moral claim. We can evaluate that claim on moral grounds using ethics. Mm. If you're saying that Trump supporters are irrational, you know, you're making an epistemic claim epistemology claim so we can evaluate that claim on using the tools of epistemology and so i thought the tools of philosophy here specifically ethics and epistemology could be utilized to, to try to argue that trump supporters are not necessarily wicked or um stupid just in virtue of supporting these policies so that's kind of the yeah. genesis of the uh, and, and you're talking about 2016 and 2020 not necessarily any future right not anything in the future like we're not right. saying you should vote for Trump. If you're a Republican primary voter, for example, we're not saying you should vote for Trump over DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy. That's not the, that's not the end game. That's, that's helpful. 
Yeah, and just in case noticed, anybody wasn't clear about that. Right. Now, you know, another thing about another connection to philosophy is that in philosophy, people debate very controversial, very um, substantive issues like abortion. Right. Um, or God's existence. Capital punishment. Without capital punishment, without, without generally speaking, demonizing each other. Yeah. Uh, and yet in politics, we demonize we demonize each other all the time. And so I'm, and, I'm sure yeah. that we could write a paper criticizing Republicans who demonize Democrats. Um, but we chose to write a paper criticizing the demonization of Republicans by Democrats. And because that's a lacuna. We have a calm disagreement right? about abortion. Why can't we have a calm disagreement about border policy? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so, so we argue that this claim is false, that Trump supporters need not be considered wicked or, uh, irrational just in virtue of, um, supporting Trump. Do you want to go through some of the arguments that we give? Sure. And I was going to look, I was looking for the, um, the conclusion, but I don't think you had a conclusion section no, I, at the time, no, but that's okay. We have a pretty good idea of what. So um, kind of the first argument, well, we, we, we spent some time documenting in that, that section that's up there on the screen right there, section two, de demonizing Trump supporters. We, we spent a little bit of time documenting that these demonizations are really out there. We're not criticizing straw men. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then in section three, cr uh, critiquing the demonization of Trump supporters, we're, we try to make our case that Trump supporters are um, not beyond the pale. They're not stupid or wicked, just in virtue of supporting Trump. And they're... We give a few arguments. The first argument we give is that uh, um, the claim that Trump supporters are stupid or immoral just in virtue of supporting Trump and his policies is a violation of the principle of charity. So the principle of charity says you should interpret your interlocutor, even if they're an opponent, you should interpret your interlocutor in the most charitable way possible. That is in the best, best possible light. So you should try to steel man your opponent, not straw man your opponent. So let's take um, take a couple of examples uh, uh, of this. So um, most Trump supporters are pro-life. Um, there's there are at least two explanations that could be given for this. One is that Trump supporters just want to control women's bodies. OK, that's a that's a that's a very uncharitable hypothesis. Another, well, another, well, something uh, charitable about it is that they know how to define the word woman correctly. <laughs> That's true. Which you can't believe I you, you have to add that now. Yeah, but Yeah, you do. But there's another hypothesis, which is charitable, even if it's incorrect from a philosophical standpoint. It's a charitable reading of why Trump supporters support uh, his pro-life policies, which is that they care about unborn children. Now, both both hypotheses would explain why certain people support Trump. I, mean, I think one of the best things Trump has done ever did as president was his appoint his appointments to the Supreme Court, leading to the overturning of Roe. And that's that's one reason why a lot of people who didn't like Trump personally held their nose and voted for Trump, knowing that he may get the opportunity to make such appointments and thus we may get the opportunity to overturn Roe. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. Um but it's un it's uncharitable to claim that Trump supporters just really want to control women's bodies when there's another charitable hypothesis that would al also explain their support for Trump. And you, the other example I was thinking of is is you see the same thing on the on the border. So 
most Trump supporters are in favor of strong, secu- uh, strong border security on the southern border. Again, we have two two hypotheses that could explain that. One is that they're xenophobes, mm-hmm. right? Bigotry. Uh, another hypothesis is that they care about border security because they're worried about uh, crime, uh, national security, the rule of law, um, child tra- uh, human trafficking, national sovereignty. Right? These are all perfectly legitimate, plausible reasons to favor border security. So again, which um, which hypothesis is the most charitable interpretation of Trump supporters that they're all xenophobes or that they have legitimate, plausible reasons for wanting to um, have a secure southern border? Yes. So, again, if you're going to operate according to the principle of charity, you should interpret your opponents in the most charitable light, which means that you shouldn't be claiming Trump supporters just want to control women's bodies. You shouldn't be claiming that Trump supporters are just xenophobic. So that's one argument we give. Yeah. Um, That's good. An, another one that we give um, is that we say that um, the demonization of Trump supporters is 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 epistemically unjustified. Mm-hmm. And here we we draw on some some research and and philosophy and social science to argue that human beings in general um, are are not always very reliable at accurately stereotyping uh, people and their outgroups. So we're, we're sort of tribalistic by, by nature, or at least by virtue of our, our the nature we possess by, uh, as a result of our fallenness, uh, the woundedness of original sin, just to put it theologically for just a minute, we tend to be sort of tribalistic by nature. Uh, we tend to sort ourselves into in-groups and out-groups, and we tend to, and we tend to negatively stereotype uh, people who are in out-groups. And these negative stereotypes um, are often are not are often not mistaken, and so um, and the reason for this is that we, we what we tend to do is create epistemic bubbles, and uh, where we we live in very different epistemic worlds from those of our, from those who have a different outlook on the world, and so what what that means is that we're not always very good at understanding why our opponents do what they do and think what they think, yeah, and um, so. Uh, based based on this and, and based on uh, sort of how divided we are and, and and the fact that we inhabit these very different epistemic bubbles or epistemic worlds these days, we argue that someone on the left who claims that a Trump supporter really just wants to control a woman's body or really is just a deep, uh, uh, is really just um, xenophobic, probably is not epistemically justified in making that claim. Hmm. Uh, what they're doing is they're, they're engaging in a negative stereotype of someone in an outgroup that they don't personally know. And they're actually ignoring all the stated reasons that Trump supporters give for supporting yeah, Trump. That's right. And they're claiming to know the deep, dark, uh, b- bigoted secrets of the hearts of these Trump supporters that, that they don't know at all. Yes. And we, we argue that um, we argue that this is irrational. And, and, and an example that we talk about in this part of the paper, Luke, is the way that the Ma- the MAGA phrase is treated. Mm. So make America great again. Yeah, you know, that's you know, good. Trump, Trump slogan. Yeah. So a lot of Trump's critics argue that people who support the MAGA uh, phrase just want to uh, put African-Americans back under the Jim Crow regime or something like that. <laughs> and that's not it. That's 
that's an uncharitable explanation. Yeah, when when a Trump supporter says wears a MAGA hat, I guess it's possible that he's really motivated by a desire to put African-Americans back into a Jim Crow regime. Or it could be a much more charitable reading would be that what this person wants is to reverse some aspect of decline and wants to make America excellent in the way that is being lost as a result of this decline. And there are lots of there are lots of ways in which America has declined that we, we, we should try to reverse, like our education system is not nearly as strong as it used to be. So if you really care about education, you're going to want to make America great again. What does that mean for you? It means we want to restore America to being the best, edu- the best, edu- having the best educational institutions in the world. That's what we wouldn't want to put black people back in chains. Right. Um, and, and so. Well, when they were, they were orders, enchained, let, let me just in, interject a, a really quick point here. Yeah, go ahead. Which is demonstrably false. <laughs> I mean, the, and I love pointing this out when I teach constitutional law, by the way, um, when I have my students read Otis McDonald versus Chicago in 2010, now this is before Trump, but this is related to Bush and related to uh, the Senate races that you see um, because George Bush put these people on the court like Brett Kavanaugh. He put Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. circuit. He put Neil Gorsuch on the D.C. circuit. He elevated uh, Samuel Alito to the Supreme Court and um, John Roberts to the Supreme Court. And his dad appointed Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. That's George Bush. And in 2010, there was a black man that sued the city of Chicago because he wanted a, a gun for self-defense because the police and they admitted this in the record were not there. They, there was like 15 to 23 minutes of a wait. And oftentimes it was longer than that. And what could go wrong in 15 minutes, you know, usually you're making the call after something has gone already wrong. It's not before. And, um, you know, he's in a rough neighborhood and he's black in the city of Chicago and the city of Chicago spent millions of dollars fighting him to, for him to be disarmed. And I, I only point this out because the segregation. Well, let's go back further to slavery. A slave by definition is disarmed. I mean, that's. So I, I I always like to ask my question to my students this way: If slaves had guns, okay, no, it's kind of far out. You got slavery, no guns. If the slaves had guns, would there have been slavery in the United States? And I don't know of any student that has ever said, "Yeah, yeah, I would have continued." Uh, you know, so, so anyway, we, and you might say that that's, that's the Republican party. Then this is now, no, no, it's the same principle because it's Republicans on the Supreme court that ruled for Otis McDonald in 2010. Well, then you have an application of that. And this is where it gets to Trump and to your point about abortion. It's also about guns. Um, the same majority that overruled root row applied Otis McDonald's decision in 2010 against this, uh, 
the state of New York, which wanted to disarm black, vulnerable people that were uh, victims of crime. And, and I would say that if you're like a slave on a plantation, you're a victim of crime. That's what that's how I look at you. And you can't defend yourself. And it's the same exact thing. So to your point, I'd say it's demonstrably false that we want to go back in time. We're actually just trying to apply the gains and the progress. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think the principle of charity demand, <laughs> demand, demands that you interpret people like us, our, our political views and in, in, in ways like that, as opposed to just accusing us of bigotry. Mm. And there's, you know, for, we, we might say that if something is obviously true to, to, take take this back a little bit to epistemology then maybe you don't need evidence for it um evidentialists would disagree because they think you need evidence for everything but um let's let's just assume for the sake of argument that if something is obviously true you don't need evidence for it well it's it's not obviously true that trump supporters are xenophobic or misogynistic in virtue of supporting border security or opposing abortion and so what that means that you need evidence for that claim what, what is your evidence yeah. that Trump right. supports just in virtue of supporting border security or the Second Amendment or, or opposing Roe are therefore bigoted? What I don't see any evidence for that. It, it's a baseless accusation. Gotcha. OK, so they're ignoring evidence that would go against their view. Right. And they're they don't really have much evidence, if any, for their view in the first place. Exactly. Gotcha. Right. That's paradigm example of lack of substance there. We we go on to argue that Trump's policies are not obviously immoral. Mm -hmm. um, it's not obviously immoral to think that our border should be secure. There are, of course, there are scholars who argue for or open borders. We we cite we cite some of those scholars, but we also point out other scholars who argue for the morality of having a secure border, that it's perfectly morally permissible and well within the confines of justice for nation states to control their borders. Yes. Um, that's that's not an outlandish view. It's not outlandish to think that you shouldn't kill unborn innocent children and that and that the thing in the womb is an is an unborn human child. That's not it may be incorrect at the end of the day. I mean I don't think it is, but it's not outlandish. It's not immoral. It's not crazy. Well, it's well within the realm of moral discourse. I don't think anybody's surprised when a human comes out. No, exactly. So um, we we argue that uh, again. Take um, take. Uh, well, I don't even. I don't even really know what Trump thinks about uh, about gay marriage. My understanding is he has no desire to overturn that. But mm -hmm. um, that's another example of at least going back a few years, which was a. A hotly debated political topic, um, in which yeah. a lot of people who supported Trump now also stood for traditional marriage before before Obergefell. Um, the idea that marriage is Other, otherwise just known as marriage, otherwise just known as marriage, and, and the idea that marriage is a is a is a is a heterosexual institution by nature, even if it's wrong at the end of the day, I don't think it is wrong. I think it's right. But even if you think it's wrong, it's not a it's not a wicked view. It's a view that almost every person on the face of the planet held for all of human history. It can be, and it can be defended by plausible arguments. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll just add really quick an anecdote from that builds on my previous anecdote of the 
2015 chaotic year that I had, uh, the traumatic year that I had emotionally because of the, the students saying it's not true that rape is wrong. I did a follow-up question because that was the year that Obergefell came down and it was, it was, it was in the press in the spring and then uh, the summer it came down and I taught all through the whole year. Uh, and um, so I, the people that said that it's not true that rape is wrong, they were the same people that wanted to redefine marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, and I'm not... ju- you know, I'm just like, you know, making connections here. I'm just, yeah. you know, I'm noticing right. uh, people that say traditional marriage. Right. For, I never said the word traditional before marriage any more than I say the word traditional before apple. Or, you know, <laughs> traditional before um, man or traditional before grass or, you know, I'm not talking about right. weed. I'm talking about traditional grass. Um, you know, it's it's like that integration thing that you mentioned earlier. OK, so I'll, yeah. I'll shut up now and let you move on <laughs> with what you're saying. <laughs> um, the, the, the fundamental point uh, in this in this uh part of the paper that we make, I think near the end of the section is that we argue that having a false moral belief doesn't make you a wicked person. Okay. Yeah. So even if Trump supporters are wrong in, in the more, in the, in the moral reasoning that they use to arrive at their policy positions, that doesn't make them terrible people. Hmm. Um, again, in philosophy, we have moral Fair arguments point. all the time. And I don't, I don't accuse my pro-choice philosophy friends of being, wicked people just in virtue of having having a mistaken view uh, of abortion i think it's a serious mistake a consequential mistake but just in virtue of making that philosophical mistake i don't accuse them of being wicked people or immoral people or bigots in some way and so i I think even if you're even if you're a democrat and you think that republicans are wrong morally speaking you shouldn't therefore impute to them moral vice on that account alone yeah and i think my experience with um, Democrats, I would say, is that's generally true. They're just generally regular people. <laughs> um, now, something happens right. when you get onto the college campuses or when you m- go into a newspaper room or something or in Hollywood, I guess. There's certain cult- cultural institutions where um it, it seems like, and i'm just trying to be descriptive here i'm not trying to be evaluative I'm, I'm just saying the phenomenology seems to be that certain cultural institutions like hollywood like like the press like the media like uh the academic quote-unquote higher quote-unquote um education system or even k-12 through to a lesser extent i guess but they feel like they have a right to rule those with an iron fist and and it's not said that way but it's if if you pay attention for like five seconds that's clearly the best explanation for what you see because it's be they 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 don't have any republican friends at all or at least they would never admit it right uh they act like they that republicans basically don't exist except for over there right and uh that they, you know, take, for example, how how California, as a matter of public policy, treated red states, they made it it was it was uh, it was against public policy, the state of California to subsidize official travel 
for years Mm -hmm. and you know to other states because why oh because they believe in traditional marriage or because they like for example arizona wanted to secure the border right and i didn't see red states doing that to california there was a very real difference and it was i mean you know california sorry i'm so traumatized being here but like people just keep telling me move move well you know i'm kind of a missionary here so i yeah that's not an option for me yeah you're doing good work not not every good person can leave their uh can or should leave their home and migrate somewhere else um that's the demonization i was saying well before trump Right. It was it was it was to any Republican. Right. And and, you know, it's just this feeling that I know we have a right to rule this campus. Right. You know, you'll only see certain stickers. You'll only right. see the rainbow sticker or the communist sticker or the Cavanope sticker or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, co- the coexist sticker. <laughs> yeah. Or the don't deport my students. Yeah. Uh, posters yeah. Uh, plastered all over Loyola Marymount University. I mean, what, what you're raising, Luke, is that is that problem, the epistemic bubble, I think, right? Is that our, our many of our universities are epistemic bubbles on, yeah. the, on the left side of the aisle. Uh, many of our elite institutions are, are, are also epistemic bubbles. Uh, mainstream legacy media um companies are epistemic bubbles academia is an epistemic bubble and so i think you're right a lot of these people don't really know any trump supporters because if they did they wouldn't say the things they say about the about about trump supporters if, if these people knew my neighbors and people in my family and people that i've known my whole life and saw how good they are that they're just normal people that have reasonable views you wouldn't say these things about about them just because they supported trump and so i think it's 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 uh they're they're just making claims they're not justified in making. Hmm. Where is this going to be published? It's you, I don't know the name of the book. You shopping? Oh, it's going to be in a book. Okay, it's going to be in a book. It's going to be a book chapter. The editor is Joseph Prudhomme, who's a political science professor at Washington College. Okay, and I believe the publisher is Roman and Littlefield. Oh, that's an academic press. That's a standard. Line. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, Maybe it'll, people will read it. I hope I hope so. Um, the paper of mine that uh, has gotten the most uh, attention is is one that I didn't publish in a philosophy journal. It's one that uh, Shannon and I published in the Oxford Journal of Law and Religion. Um, and it was What's... about religious belief in, in American politics. The title is Courting Epistemology. It came out in 2014. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. I, re- I read that one. You're talking um, about so... how religion is used in like First Amendment? Is it's how, how a lot of Supreme Court cases um, have, well, how, it's about how a lot of jurists, uh-huh. including Supreme Court justices, have taken a very negative view of religion. Mm. And uh, we defend the rationality of religious belief in the, in the face of that neg- negative view of, of religious belief as essentially um, just mere opinion that can't rise to the level of knowledge or rational belief. Wow. But. Um, the, these these t- t- type of arguments where you you take the philosophy and sort of apply it to a, a concrete issue that people are interested in, um, those arguments seem to get a lot more traction or at least a lot more attention than the purely kind of abstract philosophy stuff. So we're, so we're hoping this paper will get some attention like that one did as well. 
Well, I'm thinking that uh, this this is a part one of a of at least two parts uh, with Jonathan here because he has other work that we're going to dip into. And uh, so we want to get the Trump stuff in today. It's not all on Trump. This is the only thing you've written on Trump. But there's some other really interesting things that some other uh, sets of issues that we'd love to get into later. And so we're going to uh, have Jonathan come back on. And I'm assuming he's going to change his clothes. So it's going to be a real different session. And we're not going to record everything today. So sometimes I change my tie if I have two uh, in the same day, just so it looks like it's a different day. Yeah. But we really appreciate you coming on. And um, it's really cool to talk to you're the definitely the first professor we've had on that teaches with monks like you have like real monks. Yeah. Around. Yeah. yeah a lot like of my working? Most of my colleagues are, are in fact, Benedictine monks. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, that it, as cool it, as it sounds? I mean, no, I don't know. It's it's really a wonderful place to work, Conception Seminary College, where I teach, um, to be surrounded. It's an intellectual community of people who are all pursuing the truth because they love the truth. They love the Lord. They love their students. And there's a there's just a kind of brotherhood that um, that exists on our campus. Uh, that's just it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And, and the students are very serious about their studies, generally speaking. Uh, they're there to learn. They're there to absorb the, the Christian intellectual tradition as best they can. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it is it is as cool as it sounds. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Doctor Jonathan Fuquay. Fuquay, Fu. I still yeah, screwed Fuquay. it up. Fuquay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, thank you for uh, walking us through common sense philosophy, common sense epistemology, and some of these really thorny issues here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah.